This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Joined us for the whole semester as the Thomas F. Martin St. Augustine Fellow, the third professor to hold that, uh, that fellowship. And thankfully, as time has gone on, it's got more and more active and more and more interesting. So a personal word of thanks, Patu, for your being here. Um, Professor Emeritus of the um, of Catholic Studies at uh, Vanderbilt. Um, his interests include Christianity in North Africa in the early centuries, the thought of St. Augustine of Hippo, the thought of Thomas Aquinas, theological anthropology, and Christian social thought. One of the interdisciplinary projects that he was part of, um, which was the study of Christianity in Roman Africa during the second to the seventh centuries, developed a website that uh, is now on the Villanova server. So we not only have been able to host him for a semester, but to have the promise of continued uh, collaboration through the updating of the website on Christianity in Roman Africa. His academic career includes teaching historical theology at the Jesuit School of Theology in Chicago, in the theology department at Loyola University in Chicago, where he also served for a time as department chair, teaching religion at the University of Florida. And he also held the Thomas and Alberto White Professor of Christian Thought at Washington University in St. Louis. His several books include Theological Anthropology in the Source of Early Christian Thought theory, series, a book on Cyprian the Bishop, a book on the Holy Spirit co-authored with Father Gerald Fagan, and his original or first book, The Development of Augustine's Doctrine of Operative Grace. Introductions can be long, can be fastidious, can be all sorts of things. I could go on and on and bore you tremendously, but you didn't come here to talk to, to listen to me. Um, so, as director of the Augustinian Institute, Patu, I welcome you, and the chair or the podium is now yours. The principal function of an introduction, I think, is to get the inviter off the hook uh, in case the lecturer turns out to be a complete bomb. He is at least able to say, well, you know, with this kind of a record, I thought he was going to be able to say something intelligent. So I'm on my own. Father Allen, you're off the hook. Uh, thank you. I, what I want to talk to you about this afternoon is something that um, I suggested to Father Allen that we talk about. Augustine of Hippo, uh, whom you probably have heard about more than you ever expected to when you just came here, uh, is a very unusual early Christian father. Um, he, is, he and Gregory of Nyssa are the only two that we know who ever lived for an extended period of time in a marital relationship, and perhaps Gregory fathered a child, uh, who, and we, we think that his, his wife died in, in childbirth, uh, which many women did into the 20th century, actually. It still happens a great deal. 
in the Roman world, it happened a lot. Uh, and, um, and Augustine, whose, whose son died sometime in his late teens. Uh, the topic that I want to think about with you, uh, with your indulgence, is the practice of sexual abstinence in Christian marriage. Augustine thought that the best kind of marriage was one in which the partners did not practice sex, any sexual relations. Now, my objective in a certain sense is to give you a sense that we are a long, long way from the late 4th and early 5th century in Christian Africa. It's a completely different culture. And my objective is to try to make that culture intelligible. And in a, in a certain sense, it's, it's a challenge for all of us because what Augustine wrote about were the things that people in his culture didn't agree on. Someone like him doesn't write common sense. He presumes common sense. I mean, like, nobody comes here and explains to you what traffic lights are for. But archaeologists in a thousand years are going to have a hell of a time figuring out what traffic lights were for. Because the paper that explains what traffic lights are for is not very good, and it will not survive. All the printed driver's ed's books are going to be gone, and they're going to wonder what these things were for. We all know what they're for. We're in that situation when we're looking at as deeply embedded a cultural practice as marriage is in a culture that's so very different from our own. And so what I want to do is try to, to talk, to try to make sense of that in why Augustine would think that way and why he would, in his preaching, to the congregation of Hippo, urge them to practice marriage or to work toward that kind of a practice of marriage. And obviously, this is not simply an antiquarian exercise. What I'm trying to do is to see if there's anything there that's of any importance for us who live in a radically different culture. The continuity is that the clergy in Augustine's age were required to live in those kind of marriages. And the Catholic clergy in our age are required not to marry at all. So I want to know if there's anything that Augustine thinks that is of value for us trying to understand what the church is trying to do in both instances. Clear or not so clear? Okay. I want to start off reading something to you. This is one of the most unusual pieces of early Christian literature that was ever dictated. This is from the Confessions, Maria Bolding's translation. At that time, which means when he first started teaching, I think, either in Carthage or in Tagost, I lived with a girl not bound to me in lawful wedlock, but sought out by the roving eye of a reckless desire. All the same, she was the only girl I had, and I was sexually faithful to her. This experience taught me at first hand what a difference there is between a marriage contracted for the purpose of founding a family and a relationship of love charged with carnal desire in which children may be born 
even against their parents' wishes, though once they are born, we cannot help loving them. We continue on. This is from book four of the Confessions. When we get into book six, he's talking about the period where he's getting ready to move up in his career. He's made enough of a splash in Milan that members of the high nobility have noticed him as a possible son-in-law. Insistent pressure was on me to marry a wife. Already I was asking for it myself, and a marriage was being arranged for me, thanks especially to my mother's efforts. She expected to see me washed in the saving waters of baptism after marriage, and she rejoiced to see me being daily sh shaped toward that end, observing that her prayers were beginning to be answered and your promise with regard to my faith fulfilled. Now, what Monica's looking for is to have Augustine baptized. What everybody in Augustine's family is looking for is to have him marry a very rich heiress that is going to move him up into being the governor of a province and make their whole fortune. All the same, the pressures on me were kept up. An offer for a certain girl was made on my behalf, and she was about two years below marriageable age, which means she was 10 years old. He was 32. I liked her, so we decided to wait. Meanwhile, my sins were multiplying, for the woman with whom I had been cohabiting was ripped from my side, being regarded as an obstacle to my marriage. So deeply was she engrafted into my heart that it was left torn and wounded and trailing blood. She had returned to Africa, vowing to you that she would never give herself to another man, and the son I had fathered by her was left with me. But I was too unhappy to follow a woman's example. I faced two years of waiting before I could marry the girl to whom I was betrothed, and I chafed at the delay. For I was no lover of marriage, but the slave of lust. So I got myself another woman, in no sense a wife, that my soul's disease might be sustained in its pristine vigor or even aggravated. It was, as it was conducted under the escort of inveterate custom into the realm of matrimony. The wound inflicted on me by the earlier separation did not heal. After the fever and the immediate acute pain had dulled, it putrefied, and the pain became a cold despair. And everything died. His career, his plans for marriage, he gave it, he simply said to himself, I can't, if this is the price, I can't do it. But instead of going back to her, and she was probably living in the town where he grew up, instead of going back to her, he fought his way in a different direction and was drawn into a Christian, the Christian conversion for which his mother had hoped, and then went back to live in a, in a, a monastic community, founded a monastic community in Africa. Neither one of these people ever had another love. 
They had a son. They were completely faithful to each other the whole time they were together. And Augustine distinguishes between a marriage that is sought in order to start a family and a marriage that is and a relationship that is started in order to fulfill desire, but that is blessed with a child and becomes different. You will notice he talks about her having been ripped from him. That's a reference to Adam. The Eve was drawn from him. It's a reference to Christ dying on the cross from whom the church was born. This, this is no small story that he's writing about himself and about everybody else in the process. Augustine learned a great deal about marriage in that decade. And when he came to write about marriage and to preach about marriage, I think he always went back to that experience. And so I think that what we have here is a Christian bishop who like very few Christian teachers in the first millennium and a half, we'd have to go to Luther to get someone, or maybe to Abelard, but Abelard didn't write about marriage. We'd have to go to Luther to get anyone who, who spoke about marriage on the basis of this kind of an experience. So what I'm suggesting is, is that we have a lot to learn from Augustine about marriage. Now, when Augustine started to, when Christianity started organizing itself into a community, it was originally a Jewish community living in, living in Palestine, Roman Palestine, uh, and, and then moved in the mission of Paul out into the Roman world and by the end of Paul's life established itself in Rome. It was heir to two different traditions about marriage each of which it modified. From the Jewish side, it was heir to a tradition that the purpose of marriage is the generation of children for the maintaining of the people. The fundamental promise that God had made to Abraham was of a large, large people that would be drawn from him. And so Jewish marriage is focused on the generation of children for the maintaining and the expansion, the enrichment of the people. It's an ethnically based religious tradition. Jewish practice, Jewish religious practice also restricted sexual practice in some ways. It has a purification ritual that has to follow upon sexual intercourse and it forbids, it, 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 it finds a conflict between a priest serving at the altar and any kind of sexual contact without purification. So that, for example, if you remember the story of, of Zachary uh, serving his term, his, his time, his time the, the father of John the Baptist, serving in the temple and then going home, and it's only then, after he's done his priestly service, his rotation, that John is conceived. The same thing is true in an even more striking way. The same thing is true of people who are, who are warriors fighting in a holy war. Uriah the Hittite would have lived to be a fine old man with a son named, with son who turned out to be named Solomon. If only he had been willing to go home and sleep with his wife and cover David's adultery. 
But David said, as long as you're here reporting, why don't you go home? And he says, ha, excuse me, I'm engaged in holy warfare. I cannot sleep with my wife. Now, Christianity is heir to, the, to those traditions. And Christianity will draw upon those traditions in developing its theory of clerical celibacy. Augustine will not. Augustine never uses a ritual purity argument for anything like this. If it's going to be an argument for him, it has to be a moral argument. And that has its consequences. Christianity was also heir to the Roman theory of marriage, the Roman practice of marriage, which was fully legalized, it was, it was laid out in law, and it was revised at the beginning of the empire by Augustus with the legislation that Augustus put out on marriage, trying to encourage marriage. Um, Roman marriage is fundamentally about property. It's about maintaining and transmitting property through a multi-generational family. So that what, what, what they're looking for, what they're trying to achieve in a marriage is children. So that property may be passed to them. And they may, in turn, grow the, the family's property, continue the, the family, continue the family property. What they're interested in is the kind of income-producing property that is arable land. It's fundamentally an agricultural and a trading of agricultural products with some handicrafts and that sort of thing. But, but the kind of property that nobility want to own is, is land. And fundamentally what the Romans do in building the empire is to get more of it. If the people want to work the land, that's fine, but they want control of the land. Now, Christianity changed both of those traditions, modified both of those traditions. You don't become a Christian by being born. You become a Christian by being baptized. Even if you're born into a Christian family to two Christian parents, you still have to be baptized to become a Christian. And so Christians did not think that Christianity depended upon there being people marrying and generating more Christians. They could get Christians the way in which they had spread. They could convert them. And they were quite sure that power was on their side and that they would expand and, and, and would flourish by conversion rather than by generation. And so the fundamental unit for Christianity is not the family, it's the church congregation. Secondly, they modified the Roman system in some more significant ways. Because the Roman system was fundamentally about passing property, the one thing that it absolutely had to have was sexual fidelity on the part of the mother. Because that guaranteed that the children born to the couple could inherit from their father, and they really were their father's heirs. In the Roman system, children inherited from their mother's family and from their father's family. Now, it was easy to establish who the mother was but they really had to have a system that protected the, the, the mother so that she was not bearing children to someone other than her husband because it was robbery 
It was taking someone else's property. In the Roman world, adultery is a capital crime. The woman and her lover have no protection under the law. They can be executed by her husband, by the woman's husband, by her father, or by one of her brothers. They're serious about this. On the man's side, however, there's no such restriction. Because the only people who can inherit from him are the children born of his wife. And so if he has children born elsewhere, it, they, it makes no difference. They follow the social status of their mother. If their mother is a slave, they are slaves. If their mother is a freed woman, they are free, but they're broke. So there's an inequality between the partners in a, in a Roman marriage. And that Christianity changed. Christianity made the sexual rights of the two partners equal. He had rights over her body, as Paul puts it, and she had rights over his body. Neither one of them owned their own bodies. They were rather each other's property. And the Romans are thinking about this whole thing in terms of property. Romans allowed divorce. Christians did not. Christians allowed separation in case of adultery, and there was a problem there with Roman law. If it was adultery in a Roman marriage, it had divorce was necessary. If the husband stayed with his wife, he could be charged with procuring for prostitution. He had to get rid of her. Christianity said, all right, you've got to leave her in order to keep your head, but you cannot marry again. And the other thing that Christianity did that really challenged the Romans, Christianity, Jesus has a lot of stuff to say about property, and none of it is positive. Fundamentally, what people are supposed to do with property is give it away. By the time we get to the pastoral epistles, that is beginning to change. We have Jesus in Matthew 19 with the rich young man. What shall I do to be perfect? Jesus says, give it away, sell it, give it to the poor, come follow me. In Acts 3, the community is set up as pooling their resources and living from their resources, but it's giving up private control of property. Right? It, it's, it's, the property is held and managed by the church community and everybody lives off the income. In 1 Timothy 6, this Pauline disciple finally gets around to saying, now, some of you have property that you had before you became Christians and you have families. That's okay because we realize you've got to support your family. Just make sure that you share the income and don't get a big head about being wealthy. The poor, you have a right to support from other Christians. And if you remember the way in which Matthew 25 is set up, the only thing that Jesus says is an absolute on getting into the kingdom of heaven 
is that you have shared your property. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was in prison, you took care of me. Who are you? When did we ever, as long as you did it to one of these least, my brothers, my sisters, you did it for me. And Christians recognized that they had a responsibility for taking care of other Christians. It took them a while to, th to realize they had a responsibility for anybody else. But they had a responsibility for other Christians. And that continues. So there are three types of Christian approaches to property. You can give it away. And most of the people who did this in the 4th and 5th century did that slowly so that they timed their deaths with the end of their property. But there were some huge fortunes that were given away. I mean, we're talking about people at the Carnegie level, uh, way beyond the Romney level. Uh, there were other people who pooled their resources, and these were monks and nuns, and lived off the common, had nothing in their own name, only in the name of the community. And then there were householders. And Augustine justified householders keeping money because their children needed it. They had to use it to support their children. Clear? Not so clear? Okay. So, what Augustine's dealing with in talking about marriage are certain kinds of property. Property that is exchanged between the partners. They have property rights over one another's bodies for the purpose of generating children. And they have property that they hold for the sake of supporting their household and caring, using the income, caring for the poor within the community. Now, what Augustine does with this is to urge people to move toward the renunciation of property rights. He sets up a theory of marriage that is based upon three goods and two objectives. The first good of marriage for Augustine's view is the bond between the two people. That they make a commitment to each other and that that commitment cannot be broken except by and always by the death of one. Secondly, so this is he calls the bond of marriage and we still use the exact same terminology today because it comes from Augustine. The second thing that's, that's important about marriage is sexual fidelity. That these two people have exchanged property rights with one another and that they maintain and observe those property rights over one another's bodies. And then thirdly, the generation of children. And I put the generation of children third because he does not see it as essential to a valid marriage. He said people who are way past the ability to generate can marry and can have a marriage even though they will never generate any children. People who are incapable, who are infertile can marry and then discover that they are infertile and that is not a legitimate reason for them separating from one another and marrying someone else so that they can generate children. Christians are not that interested in children. The marriage is more important. And then the third good are the children themselves. And then there are two objectives. One of them is the control of lust. And this is the thing that I want to talk about today. And then the second one is that marriage is temporary. In heaven there is no beer, and in heaven there is no marriage. 
and I want to try to move toward why there is no marriage in heaven in this. There was marriage in paradise. Marriage is not something that is a consequence of the fall. Marriage was there from the beginning between Adam and Eve. And its, and its role was the union between the couple, the friendship between the couple, and then the generation of children. And Augustine has to try to imagine, as I'll talk about, how that generation might have taken place. Because he's convinced it was radically different from what it is now. Okay, on the handout, there are two, number five is Augustine talking about property rights. And because of the time, I want to skip over the property rights and come back to that if we have time. And what I want to go to directly is Augustine with the problem of love and lust in marriage. Lust is always more important, more interesting than property anyway, I think. At least if we could take the, the last two weeks as any kind of a, an indicator. Um, David Petraeus, the president of Lockheed, the new president of Lockheed Martin, and the president of Waffle House all lost their jobs on adultery within a week. We got a problem here. <laughs> so what is Augustine thinking about on this? In paradise, marriage was originally about friendship between Adam and Eve. He said it's really interesting that, that Eve was taken out of Adam's side so that they were both facing the same direction. They were companions moving together. He said that the differentiation in his initial works on marriage, he says sexual differentiation is fundamentally about affection between the two people. He is he's very much of a person that requires, if you're going to have social stability, somebody's got to be in charge. He thinks equality is an unstable relationship. And in his world, that was a very simple proposition. The man was in charge and the woman was not in charge. And he didn't, he didn't think about that for a, for a moment. That was simply like air. He took it in, he accepted it. What they did, it, the other reason for sexual differentiation was generation. Now, he insisted that generation as they would have gone about it, in their state of being not subject to mortality and therefore not subject to deterioration of their bodies, would have been radically different from the way in which it's carried out now. First off, they would have had full and complete control over their bodies. They would have had sexual intercourse when they decided to have sexual intercourse. Eve would have been pregnant. She would have borne children with no deterioration of her body and no pain. There are times when it looks like he's imagining that Adam and Eve are, the, are, the, are gonna be the only parents in the whole system. They're gonna generate all human beings. So that, so that Every human being is the brother or the sister of every other human being. At other times he says, well, maybe it would have gone through generations. But when he first tries to think about this, his objective is that they are constituting a society, a group of people based upon friendship 
and kinship, in which sexuality has a very minor role, though there is sexual differentiation. The, these people would have made a transition either in groups or all at once into a, into a heavenly condition where they became immortal. But they would not have done that completely until they had generated the number of human beings that God had originally intended. So that if, if you had, how many, who knows how many God had in mind, but God, it, it was not supposed to be a surprise. I mean, God knew what God wanted to do. And he says, fill the earth, okay, earth is full. These people had no idea how, how many people that would take. But anyway, earth is full, system stops, everybody goes to heaven. Or the earth changes and becomes heavenly. But after that, there's no more danger of disobedience, there's no more danger of mortality, there's, everything's just wonderful forever. Okay, that's what it would have been like, but that's not what it is actually like. Now, what happened? First off, Adam and Eve sinned internally by wanting to be their own bosses. They each did this. Augustine's proof of this is simply this. When the, when the serpent comes up to Eve and says, you know, good looking fruit on that tree, right? And Eve said, well, I hadn't noticed, but to look at it, yeah. And the serpent says, you know, you're not going to die if you eat that stuff. God doesn't want you to eat that stuff because if you did eat it, you would become like God. Okay, when's the last time you got a Nigerian invitation to... In other words, frauds only work on greedy people. Eve was already, that that, that that temptation worked meant that she already had her suspicions about God, that God was holding back on them, which means she had already preferred herself to God and Adam had too. And so they had already fallen. How had they fallen? They wanted to be their own bosses. They wanted to decide for themselves what was good and what was bad. So God had set a trap that if they did that, then there would be some way in which they would act it out. And the acting it out was the transgression. So that they couldn't say, no fair, I never did that, I, I, never, I never had that thought in my mind. No, 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 you did and you acted it out and now you have sinned. And the consequence of that sin was the loss of mortality by the loss of access to the tree of life. And God fixed them. Fundamentally what happens is they lose control of themselves as they had tried to make themselves independent of God. They were rewarded with themselves losing control over themselves. And Augustine says, if you look at the text carefully, you can see what's happened, is that they have noticed each other's nudity, and they have noticed how good that looks, and they have begun to react sexually to one another. And so 
they are embarrassed in one another's presence because they have lost control over their own sexual organs. Now Augustine says that's, it was, the function of that is to try to, to convince them that there's something wrong, they've done something wrong. And it's also great, if, you're, if the fundamental sin you're dealing with is pride, this is a great way to try to help you get over that pride. You think you're so shot, such a hot shot, you can't even control your own body. You can't even turn off your own sexual desires and fantasies. They keep coming back. You want it to be God? Let us see that you are not. And let's start the repentance process. It's, it's a punishment for the sin, but it's also a corrective punishment. Clear, not so clear what he's doing with that? Okay, that changes marriage. Because now you've got these human beings who have lost control over something they desperately need to use because they're mortal. And what happens if they can't generate? They die out. <laughs> and so they're in a bind. And so what they have to do is they have to use the very sexual desire that is working against them and try to make it work for them. But the other thing they have to do is, and as we see it developing in these systems, they've, got, they've also got to find a way to control that sexual desire. Because you have to know whose kids are whose. And so Augustine says what marriage does is fundamentally two things. It deals with the problem. Instead of having absolutely uncontrolled generation, it organizes this into nuclear families and then transgenerational families in which you know whose children are whose because you have to, if you're going to raise children and you can't trust your neighbor, you have to have private property and you're going to develop a society. So what you have is, is an institution that does two things. It uses sexual desire for the purpose for which God allowed it originally, which is the generation of children. And it also has built into it a system by which it is that sexual desire is restrained and controlled. You, is, is this making any sense? No, so what you've got to do is you've got to keep using it, but you've got to use it in a directed way. And Augustine makes the, the observation that sexual desire is indiscriminate. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you think this is a good person, that she would make a good mother, that he would make a good father. It's simply you're attracted. If he were talking about it, it would not be falling in love, it would be falling in lust. 
and then trying to make, as he and the mother of his son did, love out of it by fidelity. And so what Augustine comes down to is that the absolute essential of making human life bearable and livable and successful is sexual fidelity. Do you see how he's gotten there? Okay. Now, the other thing he's going to do with this is he's not satisfied to have sexual desire, lust, concupiscence, call it libido. He has lots of different terms for it. He's not, allowed, he's, he's not wanting to let it run rampant even within the marriage. Paul urges Christians to, 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 to contain themselves. And the way in which he, urged, he, he sets this up is that by fidelity to one another, they will come to get control over this, this indiscriminate desire. So what Augustine asserts is that sexual fidelity is absolutely essential to marriage. Not only for knowing whose children are yours and who are you responsible for, but even more importantly, sexual fidelity is important because it is only through sexual fidelity if you're going to Sexual fidelity is necessary for the humanization, the personalization, the control of sexual desire. That you, you find a partner and you make a commitment to that partner. Now think about what a difference this is in the Roman world. The people he's talking to are not Jews. He's in North Africa. They have a few Jews around, but they're not listening to him. These people have been raised in a Roman culture. They may have been Christians for generation, but they have been living on the Roman economy and in a Roman world. They think like Romans. And for them, sexual prowess is a big deal. It's an indication of a person's power and of a person's glory and of a person's honor. And Augustine is saying to them, you know what? What you're dealing with is not strength. What you're dealing with is weakness. What he goes at again and again and again is the inability to control one's own genitals. And you begin to think it's a fixation until you realize how significant it is for his culture. He's trying to subvert the Roman ideal of power either the power to dominate or the power to seduce, which are both based upon sexual desire. He says, you two people, if you're going to marry and if you're going to have sexual relations, you need to be faithful to one another. Which is to say, first off, you need to, you need to raise children. This is what sex was given to you for. That's why God created it. That's how you should use it. But we all know that that's not going to be enough. Your desire is going to outstrip the office of generating. And so you're going to have, you're going to, have to be willing to engage in sexual relations 
either because you need them or because your spouse needs them. It's the only way to keep the marriage faithful. Is this making any sense? You see where he's going with this. If you, if you, if you promise each other fidelity, and if you live by that fidelity, then God will forgive your excessive use of sex. But it's also that he's about. God will thereby change your excessive use of sex. Why? Because if the two people have to come to one another with their need and their inability to control themselves, they are by that very fact saying to one another, I need help. They are not simply using one another, but they are admitting to their inability not to. And since they are, in Augustine's view, committed to one another, each of them is willing to support the other. He says, one of the, one of the most out, outraged letters he ever wrote was to a mother who declared herself a widow before her husband died. And the husband, of course, after a, a little bit of this, said, well, all right, fine. I'm taking up with Susie. And Susie was right there to hand him. And the house was full of, servant, of servants. He just had to choose one. And Augustine wrote to her and said, you are responsible for that man's damnation unless you change. That's not fair. That's not what you signed up for. In other words, what he's doing is taking the inordinate, the, the, the use of sexuality which is not directed toward the generation of children, and turning it into a confession of weakness and a forgiveness of that weakness by the very fact of tolerating it. Now look, he's talking about sex because the people he's talking to are talking about sex. But it's the whole relationship that he's talking about. When he talks about this in the church community, he's talking about you've got to do the same thing for the person in the standing next to you at the Eucharist who keeps coughing. The person's not doing it to annoy you. The, the, it's a weakness. Forgive it. And so what he's talking about then is, a, is that by the very fact of exercising, of allowing to one another the privilege of abuse. And it's not simply that the wife has to put up with the husband's desires, it's that the husband has to put up with the wife. You can't ask anything you're not willing to give, he says. You see where he's going with this? So what he's doing is taking that abuse of sex and turning it into an act of confession and forgiveness. Fundamentally, acts of love. And in Augustine's theory, that's the way sins get forgiven. 
There are those sins that the bishop has to forgive, and that's adultery. One of you commits adultery, you got to see the bishop about that. But one of you demands, asks for, needs, that's forgiven by face-to-face. -face. That's forgiven. I mean, people went to confession only once in their whole life. Everything else is forgiven face-to-face -face by the person they were harming. And what he's doing is setting up a system within marriage, and this is out of Matthew 18, where Jesus says to the whole Christian community, if somebody sins against you, go tell them about it, get it worked out. And where he says at the end of the Gospel of John, talking to all the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive, they're forgiven. And what's said in 1 Peter 4, 8, charity covers a multitude of sins. And what's said at the end of the Our Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive. Forgiveness of the sin of the abuse of sexuality in marriage, the lustful use of sex, is forgiven by the person who suffers that lustful use of sex. And thereby, charity is built. Thereby, love is built. And thereby, the power of concupiscence of lust is, is undermined between the two people. This begins to get personalized. This gets focused on one other person. This gets to be not domination, but submission and having yourself accepted in your weakness. And he says that builds love, that builds charity, and that undercuts the dominating, the selfishness, the taking. In other words, what he's doing is saying sexuality becomes, sexual relations within marriage become an act of generosity rather than an act of selfishness. Is this making any sense? You see what he's about? And it all depends upon fidelity. If you can hide this stuff, I mean, when, when, the, when the head of a family calls one of his slaves and says, strip, what's her choice? None. She's simply got to put up with. Or him. Because these kind of guys are bisexual. They're completely in control. But in the marriage relationship with their spouse, they're not in control. And there is abuse on the woman's side of the slaves on the women's side as well. And the slaves have nothing to say about it. But when they have to go to their spouse who is their equal, it changes the whole dynamic. And what had been domination becomes receipt of a gift. Okay. So where is he going with this? He's going toward the building up of love between the couple. And this is specifically Christian love. This is forgiving love. This is love inspired by the Holy Spirit. In Christianity, that love will not stand the exclusivity of marriage. It wants to spread. But it can't spread unless it becomes freed of lust.
Otherwise, you simply have a lot of predators running around. And so what marriage does is become a school of fidelity, a school of control, and a school of freedom to relate to other people in a way that is generous rather than self-seeking. Is that transition? In other words, fundamentally, the unit, the Christian unit is the congregation. And what he needs to have happen is for these people to get to the point where it's safe to have them in the congregation. Because there is a place where their sexual desires are met. But in that very meeting, they are learning to control, to unmask, and to recognize that as weakness rather than strength. And so what Augustine is aiming at in this whole system, it seems to me, is preparing people to be, live in a community of friendship rather than a community of lust in which they can appreciate the other person for who the other person is and not for who the other person, how the other person can satisfy oneself. He asked the question, when we get to heaven, will there still be sexual differentiation? You, know the, you understand the question. Are there still going to be men and women? Now, a lot of Christians would have said no. Why? Because they're like angels. They neither marry nor give in marriage. But he said, oh no, sexuality goes all the way back to the beginning, and we're not going to become our sexual. But we're not going to be having intercourse. No, what we're going to be able to do is to appreciate the beauty of the human body without lusting for it. We're going to be able to notice how that even the most functional parts are decorated and how beautiful the human body is. In a certain sense, what he, and that's what he's trying to, to use marriage for, is to, is to help people start to move toward that place where they can appreciate people in their otherness, in their goodness, in their beauty, in their strength, in their wisdom, to appreciate them as God's creatures within a community of faith. Is that making any sense? And, and fidelity within marriage is the way to get there. Because only fidelity within marriage or the renunciation of sexual desire, period, in a religious community or as an individual, that's the only way to get there. You've got to get beyond the desire itself. That you're being driven and a slave by desire to a point where there is real freedom. Interestingly enough, what was required of the Christian clergy was that at the time they were ordained for the general ministry of the church, as subdeacons, deacons, presbyters, or bishops, they had to renounce sexual relations within their marriage. 
In this period, clerical celibacy is not an alternative to marriage, it is a form of marriage. No one was ordained to any of these ranks until they were 25 years old, which was the same time age at which a person could declare virginity, that I'll never marry or become a monk. What he's doing is saying that in order to serve the Christian community, you have to be living this way. Not he doing. Now some people would explain that on the basis of the fact that sex is dirty and you have to keep it away from the Eucharist. Augustine will have none of that. He will never use that as an explanation. It's about the way in which real Christian charity works. And that Christian charity is inclusive rather than exclusive. And therefore, it has to give up sexual practice, which is necessarily exclusive. Thank you. It's always a neat adventure when you can walk into the life of Augustine and find the depth of the humanity that is found there. We thank you for doing that with regard to marriage. I'm sure Matu will be anxious to hear some of your questions and to uh, carry on this discussion as long as you'd like. James. Thank you, Matu. I, I thought that was just a brilliant explication of Augustine's marital ethic of sexuality. If, if the logic is as you said, and, and I'm, I'm inclined to think that it is, it strikes me that it has an extraordinary implication for the ethic of celibacy within the church. Because if the logic's correct, then celibacy is a gift, not a choice. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of the case of the widow who decided, uh, well, the, 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 woman who, the wife who decided to become a widow, as if, and so, so, so it seems to me that it's, it's also, of course, a threat to the hierarchical structure of a, of a Roman marriage. Because the decision to move from a sexual marriage to a non-sexual one cannot be a unilateral one. And it really can't be the decision of just the individual thinking that he or she is tough about sexual desire. Yeah. And, 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 and to call someone to the clergy means that you have to have, and, and in this period, what Augustine's dealing with, they're all men. To call someone to the clergy, you have to have his wife's permission. Because she has got, she has a right to his body that she has to give over. She has to make the gift of her spouse to the community. Still the case in the Coptic Church that I, that I, I know of. Um, still the case in the Coptic Church. The one place where, where it could be experimented with or thought about or noticed how it works is with the, the permanent deacons, who are generally older people who have, who have raised their children, and, and to, to see how, how they work their ministry and how it works itself out in their marriage, we could learn something. They're not required to do this, but But as you recognize, this is constructed on the basis of things he says elsewhere. Yeah, please. 
I, I have a question, an historical question rather than a theological one, actually. I just am curious about um, Roman attitudes towards contraception, uh, abortion, and infanticide. I've heard they were very, very liberal. Is that would seem to uh, not advance the cause of the uh, multi-generational family. I, I'm just curious about that in the Christian response. It takes... Um, It takes it takes five it takes five pregnancies for a couple to replace themselves. On average, you you lose a lot of children in the first few years, you lose a lot of wives. It take sex is really dangerous for women. So you, you women can die of sex, and and a lot do. So, what happens with is with defective or or uh, or, ex or excessive children, they're, they're put out for someone else to, to take, and they end up usually as servants. What you're saying is after five children, they... No, 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 after, no, after five pregnancies, or after okay. uh, the people, or the... But, but if, if, a, if, a, if a head of a household generates by one of his slaves, th that child is one of his slaves. Uh, people follow the condition of their, of their mother. So if the mother is free, the child is free, We'd almost be certain that Augustine's concubine was a free woman, not a servant, because Adeodatus was a free man, was, was born free. Uh, so, but but the, the Manichees had contraceptive devices, the, the Romans had contraceptive devices. Abortion is a dangerous procedure in, in, in this system as well. Uh, I mean, still a slightly dangerous. Uh, but. But, but they don't use abortion so much as they just go ahead and have the child and decide whether they keep it. Now, is there a, a widespread Christian response to these practices? Absolutely, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not practice, Augustine a says to, have, to, to, have, to, to, to prevent conception, to prevent conception is equivalent to adultery. It's an, in, in other words, what he says with, with his concubine, we didn't seek children, but... But when they came, we accepted them. And when we accepted them, I mean, this, this guy, you read this person talking about his son, he is awestruck by this child. And he, that child must have reminded him of his mother. And it was the... Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.